सकता That's interesting that word uh, radical economic transformation now part of our lexicon certainly was not the case about six months ago, I would think. And uh, just by the way, so that you know, we had a wonderful, very insightful debate on that, whether what's the difference between radical economic transformation and things like BEE, which we did on the Monday afternoon talk show that I host uh, every day, of course, from 2 to 5, every week, 2 to 4 rather. But uh, if you want to get that uh, interview, check it out, go to the website uh, and you'll get it as a podcast. Really important discussion there. Okay, this is the media show. Sunday morning, we talk marketing, we talk branding, we talk journalism, we talk brand communications, everything that communicates. Well, that's what we talk about. We could talk about you. You never know, right? Well, 891 you certainly can call in you can sms to 40938 when when you tweet some tweeting already hashtag media show please do that and then tweet to my twitter handle ashraf garda as well as to the safm radio twitter handle so much to talk about over the next uh, two hours as per always but let's start with possibly one of the most significant media or journalism stories of the last, uh, not the last week, it's happened in the last week or two, but really I think the implications are that it could be far-reaching over the next year or two. I have no doubt about that. And that is the issue around the Huffington Post blog. You know the blog that um, was was written by someone who suggested that, uh, that, that white South Africans need to be disenfranchised and then they found out that person was not who he claims he was. In fact, he was he was writing under a pseudonym. There were lots of facts that were incorrect. Uh, there were charges. There were counter charges. Huffington Post apologized. The editor apologized herself. But there were certainly reports. There were complaints to the uh, to the press ombudsman, and they ironically found uh, not ironically found uh, the editor. Uh, Vareshni Pillay of the Huffington Post they found, well they found the editor or rather the, the Huffington Post itself guilty not so much of, of hate speech but certainly promoting them, it's using the platform allowing the platform for hate speech and as a result she then resigned last week so so much has happened, I understand people like Firo Hafferty now in a caretaker position none of them are talking but let's get a thought of what actually has happened and what are the lessons to learn from it, so Ben Winks is with me, he's an independent legal consultant Ben appreciate your time, hi Morning, Ashraf. Thanks Th- for having me. Thank you. I rushed it, uh, giving us a quick background. You may want to just add some more so we don't miss out on any information. Just go in and let's recap what actually happened. Yes, well, the, I think everybody's familiar with the uh, the piece itself, even if they haven't read it. It was uh, quite a short opinion piece, essentially saying that white men around the world are disproportionately powerful politically and economically, and one possible way to address that is to deny them the right to vote for about 20 years, for a generation, um, because then without having them in the voting booths and in parliaments, uh, you'll be able to pass laws for the redistribution of wealth from white men to everybody else. Um, so the, it was uh, regarded as outrageous. Many people considered it racist and sexist. And uh, there were three formal complaints lodged against the Huffington Post who had published the blog on their website. Um, in the meantime, it transpired that the, the blog had been a, a hoax. It was written by a white man who um, didn't actually believe the content. He was uh, effectively playing a, um, a trick on the Huffington Post. He wanted to see, you know, he, he 
claims that what he wanted to do was to expose the lack of fact-checking in South African journalism. So he submitted a piece that was laced with uh, grossly exaggerated figures, which he had found in other online articles, for example, that white men own 97% of the shares on the JSC and 90% of South Africa's land. And uh, he put those uh, figures in there, and then the piece was published with those figures. So he, you know, then um, felt that this proved that uh, there's there's a lack of sufficient fact-checking in South African journalism. And what the Huffington Post has been most heavily criticized uh, uh, for in media circles is that they never took um, adequate steps to verify the identity of the author, the the, the blogger, because mm-hmm. you know, then they, they would have discovered that it was somebody um, uh, using a fake identity. Okay, so let, let's look at a couple of things, right? The, the, the fake identity part is, is one thing. The, the principle of, of anybody saying, well, I want to test out veracity and, and check out whether media houses have checks and balances, nothing. I mean, that's within any South African individual's right, isn't it? That person can do so. But is, is that correct? Y- yes. So it, okay. it's important um, for us to compartmentalize the, the issue, perhaps, about this hate. Precisely. And, and, and this is what, I, what I'm trying to do. So that's the first part, right? But the fact <laughs> that that person, because, I mean, we're looking at lessons to learn here, the fact that that person whose intentions may be to prove sort of, you know, uh, loopholes in the system, and maybe, thank goodness, he's done that, now we know, but the fact that he used another name, that, in fact, he was false, right? How, you know, what, what do we learn from that? Yes, so the... Um there is an obligation, at least you know, as a matter of editorial practice, uh, to rely on anonymous or pseudonymous sources uh, in, in reportage only if there is a, you know, a, a real public interest in keeping a business identity secret. Um, so when it comes to reporting, for example, uh, you know, editors are required to establish the identity and they can't just you know, accept um, an anonymous uh, message. They need to verify the identity of the source, um, even if they're going to keep it secret themselves. So there's nothing wrong with using a pseudonym. Um, in fact, there's, uh, there's a pseudonym that's used in the Rand Daily Mail of the name of Lily Gossam, who writes very long articles on political economy. And, you know, Ben Travato is a, a pseudonym as well. There's nothing wrong with writing Zapiro amongst the more well-known ones, right? Uh, yes. But, 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 but what but you're saying is... The publisher needs to know who it is. Okay, so, so here's the first part, in, as we segment here. The fact that this person did not tell, tell the Huffington Post who he really was, right? That, has he got up scot-free for this? What, what should be done about him? Well, it's... That's something that really would be, um, I mean, it's, it's outside because he's not a regulated, uh, you know, media person. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to lodge a complaint with him personally at an institution like the press council. If the Huffington Post wanted to sue him for damages, um, because of the reputational harm that he's caused them and the, uh, um, possible financial harm if they could prove some kind of financial loss, uh, then they may very well want to take uh, action against him. Um, but then an issue there would be their own contributory fault. You know, they've admitted uh, liability for negligence, and that you know they really should have identified, yeah, identified his uh, uh, his true. 
uh, name and and particulars. Okay. So they they may have, if they were inclined to pursue such a case, which I think would be unlikely, um, because that would only enhance you know the public spectacle, and, and that would you know it's already been okay. So from them, it's simply a uh, case of lessons learned. The guy was wrong, but but he was right to test our system, and in fact he got away with the system. So so let's move on. Now we know that the end story of all this is that uh, that Washington, Huffington Post does not have an editor at this point in time. Rashid Palay has, has had to resign or she resigned on her own anyway, right? Let's then look at what happened next. So the post was published, lots of, I mean, I certainly read it uh, first up, right? Don't think I retweeted it, by the way, without a comment. But uh, but what was interesting is, am I right? Huffington Post made a bit of a fuss out of, of, out of the post because they, they saw traction coming out of that. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. And, and that's where, from the press council's perspective, this wasn't a mere case of, uh, you know, a website hosting somebody else's opinion but actually sort of endorsing the opinion itself. So somebody, there had been many complaints submitted to Huffington Post about the piece, and then Varashni Pillay herself wrote a column in which, or an editorial in which she defended what she called the underlying analysis uh, in the piece. She said, you know, we don't necessarily agree with it or endorse it, but the underlying analysis is not controversial, which is that white men are disproportionately powerful, and they wield that power, in her words, to dangerous and destructive ends. Um, and uh, people take issue with that, and she um, said that, you know, that this premise is blindingly obvious. Uh, so the, the the press ombud in his ruling... Okay, hold uh, it. I'm, I'm going to move on to that, that one in a moment. Mm. So, so the fact that, that she then defended... He is right. So at that point in time, it was still this, this, this person under the pseudonym, which they didn't quite know. But, but the person's right to effectively deliver a, a thought leader piece on one of the ways to redress imbalances is uh, disenfranchise white South Africans. You know, principally, many people speak about different things along the same principle. Would, would she be right in, in, in giving that person the platform? Yes, I think so. I mean, there's... Um there is no prohibition on uh, controversial or uncomfortable or outrageous or outlandish speech, even in the mainstream media. Um, and it's arguably more healthy for these uh, kinds of opinions to be aired and debated and rebutted in the mainstream media rather than on uh, fringe-type uh, media. So uh, there's nothing unlawful about publishing, even something that might be... Um, uh, prejudiced uh, to a degree mm-hmm. as long as it's properly contextualized as somebody's opinion and not presented as fact um, and mm-hmm. that no material facts are misrepresented or suppressed. And, and, and did how um, did those do that? Did they present it as fact, as this is the reality or this is the opinion of one person? Well, this is where it gets a little bit tricky because there's in the piece you have a mixture of comment and, and fact. So the piece relies or refers uh, to certain factual assertions like 97% of uh, the shares on the JSC are owned by white men and 90% of South African land is owned by uh, white men. Um, Now, those are not um, verifiable statistics and the uh, likelihood and the consensus is that they're grossly exaggerated. But, but would it be the responsibility so, of Huffington Post to, to correct that or to simply say this is his claim? If they were to contextualize it as such, um, what, what they would need to do is to ask the blogger 
to indicate that this is his own estimate or this is his own influence. Um, and that way, so what, what the publisher is required to do, what a member of the mainstream media is required to do, is simply to make sure that fact and opinion are clearly distinguishable from each other. That, that's the issue, is that something that is an opinion or an estimation must be presented as such. All right. Then we also know there was this, there was, there was a, a, a very smart reporter who, who was able to confirm and prove that the person was not who he claims he was, right? Uh, then there was, and, and, the, and that person confirmed that there was an apology from Huffington Post very early on, right? From Vereshnik, from the editor. Yes. What, what did uh, you make about? So the, and, and they took a bit of heat for this uh, later as well, is that they apologized only for the lack of controls. Uh, in verifying, uh, you know, who, who the blogger was, but then didn't apologize for the content, you know, wh- whether for um, the fact that there were factual inaccuracies in the article itself. There, there wasn't an apology for that, and, and people said that, you know, perhaps there should have been, that in the process of vetting articles that are going to go on the website, mm. you need to assess not only who the person is, but whether the what is presented as fact in their piece um, is actually verifiable. And then they apologized only for the former and not for the latter. Okay, let's move on. So that happened, you're saying, in fact, the apology was not well received because of, because of what they were apologizing for. Then there was an interesting twist. I mean, that, even that, I mean, there are many editors who come under fire and then you just move on, right? Uh, that would have been enough, but there was a complaint to the, to the press ombudsman around the issue of hate speech. Can you tell us about what happened there? Yes, this is where um, we, we move away really from the, the question of uh, whether or not it was a hoax and whether they did enough to verify identity. Now we just look at the content and we assume that it's written, you know, whether it's written by a hoaxer or somebody who actually means what they're saying is then beside the point. If we just look at the words themselves, does it constitute speech that falls outside the permissible bounds um, set by the press code, which echoes the Constitution. So, um, the, firstly, it's important, I think, to because there, there has been some confusion about this, uh, to make it clear what the press ombud's authority is. So the press ombud only has the power to make decisions um, directing and regulating the behavior of members of the press council, which is a voluntary association. It's not a state body. Um, its, uh, its membership includes uh, print and digital media organizations. As you'll know, broadcast um, radio and television media companies are members of the BCCSA. This is the print and digital media's mm-hmm. version of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it doesn't mean that uh, somebody can't publish exactly the same piece on their own website or their own blog if they're not a member of the press council. So it's important to to clarify that the power of the press ombud to police speech only extends to uh, its own members um, and and doesn't then affect the behavior of ordinary citizens like you and me and doesn't necessarily affect um, radio and broadcast, uh, radio and television broadcast media either. Their code has been interpreted differently. All right, let me just remind you as a listener that we are talking about uh, lessons to learn 
from from that whole Huffington Post uh, blog that made a whole lot of claims, including disenfranchising white South Africans by someone who claimed he was somebody else, but in fact he was, he was, was another person completely. And the bottom line to that is the editor of the Huffington Post, Rash Nicolet, then has resigned. We're getting to that. By the way, just to tell you, we had wanted to speak to her this week. She's not keen to talk now, but she says she'll probably talk. She will talk next week. Uh, then the acting editor, which is Fidel Hafiji, has also said that uh, give us a couple of weeks and then we'll talk. I think they're trying to get the, they're, they're trying to make some sense of where they need to go next around this year. Uh, right then, so so with regard to the complaint then um, mm. by by these white South Africans, right? Yes. What, what, did they, what did they complain about? So three white men uh, complained that. The, not only the article, but also Varashni Pillay's subsequent column where she defended the, the article or the blog, um, constituted uh, hate speech um, or discrimination or both uh, towards white men as a group um, in violation of the press code. Uh, now, this is where you would expect the, um, the ombud to engage in a an analysis of the content of the blog and measure it against the prohibitions in the press code. Mm-hmm. So the press code, among a range of you know, editorial um, practices and journalistic practices, like, uh, for example, uh, distinguishing clearly between fact and opinion, not stating facts that are false, etc., uh, etc. Et um, there is also a general prohibition on discrimination and hate speech. Um, Now, what discrimination refers to is uh, a provision in the code that says that the media may not make discriminatory or denigratory references to race, gender, or other grounds um, unless it's strictly relevant to the matter being reported on and it's in the public interest to do so. Now, this is the first uh, provision that, in in my view and uh, many others, uh, was incorrectly interpreted or incorrectly applied by the press ombud. Um, And his analysis with respect was not very rigorous. He didn't uh, identify the different elements of the prohibition and apply them individually to different parts of the text. He simply made a sweeping finding that the piece as a whole was discriminatory by definition, but then he didn't define discrimination, mm-hmm. and uh, then he proceeded to look at hate speech. And just in relation to discrimination, I should mention that he also said that the reasons advanced for this discriminatory um, article uh, were also clearly denigratory, but he didn't dis- define that either, and he didn't identify which reasons given in the article were particularly denigratory. So um, that, that's his first finding, is that it's discrimination. On, on those grounds. Okay. His second finding is that it constitutes hate speech, which is defined as advocacy of hatred that constitutes incitement to cause harm. So there are four elements of that. There's advocacy. It must be advocacy. It must be calling on people uh, in mm, some way. Mm, mm. Uh, and it must be of hatred. Uh, so that's another term that needs to be understood and defined. And it must also constitute incitement to cause harm. So you need to define incitement and you need to define harm. Now, we do have considerable case law on these concepts in South Africa and also in international law where the prohibition on hate speech comes from after the Second World War. 
But the press ombud didn't analyze any of those elements and didn't refer to any authority to interpret them. He simply relied on an obscure opinion by a Kenyan academic who used different terminology to define hate speech, uh, that it must be inflammatory and it must be targeting a specific group. And he, in you know, a very sweeping fashion, said that, well, clearly this blog does that. But he didn't analyze you know, any, didn't identify which parts of the text actually did that. Uh, so it, it's unfortunate that he hasn't actually provided uh, adequate or really any reasons for his findings. He's simply concluded without um, analysis. All right. So, so that's interesting because I, I get the impression, well, you've said that you don't agree with him, right, with respect, number one. Yeah. Uh, the, the press council, he's the press ombudsman, the, the former ombudsman, uh, Joe Clover, who's now the executive director of the press council, has taken it upon himself to actually appeal the decision, so effectively opposing the press ombudsman himself, right? And there are many other people in the media, uh, uh, by and large uh, media experts, lawyers, etc., etc., who, who all feel that that particular ruling was just completely out. The, the, the downshot of that is that while we're debating this, uh, Vereshni Pillay has, has resigned. What, what is your understanding? Why, why did she resign? Well, the timing is um, is really all we have to go on. Uh, so she resigned immediately after the hate speech um, uh, ruling was uh, was given. Uh, so it may indicate that she was resigning in relation to that. Um, but, but her reasons are not uh, explicitly set out. And Songhezo Zibi, the former editor of Business Day, um, wrote a very, uh, a very insightful piece where he said that, um, yes, I mean, the editorial lapses, the lack of verification, etc., um, you know, were um, particularly concerning. And if she was resigning for that, then, uh, you know, that that is, um, yeah, a valid reason to resign. He's not saying that she necessarily mm. should have for that, but it would be a, a valid reason. Um, but he feels that if she was resigning because of the hate speech ruling, then that wouldn't be um, an encouraging sign because that, that in his view, the, the speech concerned clearly didn't concern hate speech. Um, and, and my view is the same, really. But, but we don't know her precise reasons. She's asked to, to take some time, yeah. uh, which mm. is understandable. And uh, perhaps she will give an account when she's sort of back, uh, back online, in a sense. Okay. Let's get some calls. I'll take maybe two, three maximum. Very short and sharp, please. So get to the point. I'd appreciate that. Ivan from George High. Uh, morning, Ashraf. Morning. morning to your guest. Thank Look, you. I think your guest has put his finger on a very important point, and that is that uh, uh, with, with all newspapers and I would like to bring it home to, to talk show hosts particularly. Mm. There's an immense responsibility on, on people who are presenting a, a, a public program, whether it be a newspaper or a radio program, that they, they must challenge uh, outrageous and false and uh, defamatory and racist statements of callers. You so often get a caller phoning in, and he talks absolute nonsense. He makes a statement which is blatantly false. And all the talk show says to him is, 
Thank you very much for your view. And then no, but, but, tell you, but, but let me interject. You can't say all. You can't say all the talk shows. You can't say all the talk shows. Now hold it. You can't say all the talk shows that I certainly challenge it. I think when people make exaggerations, I often get accused of of cutting people off. In fact, I don't. But what I do is I interject when people stray from the topic. So what I'm saying, and therefore I'm interjecting you because when you say all the talk shows does, okay, it gives no, the no, impression no, I, I that I all of them do. There's a responsibility on yeah. all talk shows, and some of them. Don't come up to that. Uh, they don't okay. come up to that uh, mark I, that is required. I, I, I think you raise a very important point, Ivan. Thanks for that from uh, from George. Sid, go ahead. Hi. Uh, hello, Ashraf. Thank you very much. Thank uh, you. I wanted to say that this was not hate speech in my estimation. Uh, it was really just deeply held prejudice by the two leading editors of HuffPost, and it was a disgrace for them. And, and they weren't decent editors to start with, because any editor should have picked up the flaws, and and then their prejudice shone through dismally. Uh, but it was not. What, what, what was the prejudice? Can you explain it. Where, where was the, the prejudice? Uh, the prejudice. sexism that allowed them, and the and the uh, the sexism and the racism, uh, particularly more so than the sexism, which but, but allowed. Ray, them I'm trying to understand this. Thing because because, because, because said they didn't agree with the statements. They just allowed the platform. <laughs> it is it is their prejudice that overlooked the the, the incredible untruths that were in there. And 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 this is really uh, an example, a classical example of what's wrong with the whole Western press uh, as far as the Trump election and Brexit. All these things were caused by by political correctness of this same caliber, uh, which failed to appreciate what the reality is uh, in 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 our uh, in, in in our social okay. environment. Sig, thanks for that uh, call. Interesting point. Prejudice. Uh, we're going to wrap up in about a minute or two at most. Uh, my guest is is Ben Wings. Ben, uh, ben, ben, talk about that prejudice as per the caller. Yes. So there's um, th- this is why I I focus on the term hatred. Uh, because it, it, it's a very harsh term, the word hatred, and in international law, that's interpreted to mean, you know, advocacy of hatred is to um, to advance the view that uh, a certain category of people, ethnically or on the basis of gender or race, um, are subhuman because of some kind of intrinsic biological or cultural or historical reasons or characteristics. So hatred is something quite different, perhaps, from prejudice, and. Prejudice, for example, in this article was to say, well, almost, uh, you know, the complaint is that the person is using too broad a brush to say, oh, all white men are mm. um, uh, neoliberal or reactionary or opposed to change, resistant to change, and that's why all of them must lose the vote. Uh, that's, I mean, it's, it's very, it's a broad generalization. But you find these kinds of generalizations in the, in, all over the media, and it's, it's an important part of the public debate is that people are allowed to advance these, uh, these views in, in a broad brush because it's, that's how we debate issues. So you can't you know, be expected to substantiate every point and say that 97% of white men are, are um, uh, privileged you know, with accurate statistics. That, that would stifle and stultify debate. So, for example, the many contributions we see recently about white monopoly capital and the role of white working class and the white middle class and the white capitalist class, uh, you know, these are vital conversations that South Africans need to be having. A lot of people don't like and don't agree with the terminology about white monopoly capital. And there is a, 
perhaps a prejudice in it, in the terminology itself. But we can't ban it on the basis that not mm. all white mm. people are, are, capital, are rich or capitalists. I mean, that, that would be absurd. Okay, so, so as, as we then wrap up, right, uh, do, do you think, I mean, two things. Do, do you think, and I've put a post, I've just tweeted about it now, is why is Varash right to, to resign as editor of, of the Huffington Post, in your opinion? Well, uh, I... I wouldn't look at it in such a binary way, to be honest. I mean, I think that there was a need for some kind of accountability. I mean, mainstream media do exercise considerable power to inform and to misinform, and the editorial lapses around uh, the publication of uh, this blog with, you know, by a hoax author and with bogus statistics, I think was um, something that demanded accountability, whether it was a really a, a very... Um, a very strong apology, much stronger than what was given, or some indication of disciplinary action against whoever okay. might have been now, now, we know, and that's one of, the, one of the reasons why the press consuls, uh, Joe Tolva is not talking, because they have appealed, and, and we'll see how that rolls out, and clearly we will follow that story, right? B- bottom line to this, Ben, there are so many angles to the story, and I would think it'll be a case study, uh, certainly at, at many of the, the journalism schools around the country, right? What, what, what are the big lessons to learn from this, finally? I think it's a time that we start uh, engaging in debate in a manner that is uh, perhaps, uh, you know, we participate in a way that doesn't seek to police um, uh, the advancing of, of, of outrageous or outlandish views, but rebut it. You know, if, if you don't like it, rebut it, rather than complain that it's advocacy of hatred, because it's really, I mean, that, that would not, I think, be conducive to exposing ridiculous views. You should rather um, rebut it. You know, that's how we need to debate these things, is if you don't agree with it, you don't like it, refute it. Okay, got that. Uh, by the way, Ben, feel free to, to tweet some of the points you've already made, because you are tweeting right now, but also continue tweeting additional thoughts that you may want to add, uh, and then just tweet to me using hashtag media show. I will gladly share that as well. All right? Thanks, Asher. There we are. Ben Winks, the, who's an independent legal consultant. In fact, he's written a blog about this, and hopefully he'll tweet the link to that blog as well. It's an interesting one. Let's see where that story goes in the, in the weeks ahead. So many angles. And uh, bottom line, Huffington Post does not have an editor as a result of what's happened. Let's talk about the concept of the social CEO right after this.